Well, let's join together in prayer. We come, gracious God, to you, for you have the words of eternal life. To whom else can we go? We thank you for your word, for its unfolding story. And this morning, as we go back to pretty much the beginning, as we see what was said there, what happened there, what fell upon our forefathers there, we thank you for the hope that was given. Please help us and please help me to underline that hope and to show how all things that you have promised would happen have come to pass. We pray this, asking it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, believe it or not, uh, this morning marks the first Sunday in Advent, the weeks leading up to Christmas. It comes around, I tend to think, just a little bit quicker every year. And while this month is one that many churches generally set aside for a preaching series to lead up to Christmas, we're also going to be doing the same beginning this morning. And the theme I've chosen is the coming of the Messiah as told to. And this theme will take us to a variety of texts and to a number of individuals. And next week to King Ahaz in Isaiah chapter 7 who heard the words of the prophet a virgin will conceive. Then two weeks after that, on the day before Christmas, to Mary who heard the words of the angel that she would be the mother of the Messiah. And then on Christmas morning to Joseph, who was also told by an angel to name this child that Mary would bear, Jesus. And then on the last Sunday of the year to King Herod, who heard from the wise men the announcement of the Messiah's birth. Uh, This series will, I hope, help us cut through all that is sentimental and missing the point about Christmas so that we can have our in our minds the focus of the scriptures, the unfolding story of the Messiah that God promised. And of course, that promise of the Messiah had been announced from the scriptures way, way, way back even as far back as the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, where we find ourselves in the text this morning. What a text it is. The key text, perhaps, in the whole of the Old Testament. The one, therefore, that we need to get right, because if we don't get it right, we could end up in all sorts of trouble. But if we do get it right... It will be a text that will be so helpful in tracing the promised coming of the Messiah. Three things, therefore, I want you to note with with me this morning about this text. First of all, we're given here a sober reminder of humanity's undoing. A sober reminder of humanity's undoing. The context of our verse, which we're looking at verse 15, this morning is also very important. 
In fact, it would be impossible to unpack this verse without referring to its context because the context is the biggest and most important of all contexts in the whole of the scriptures. How do we understand Genesis 3? Put it in its context and you will know that context. Genesis 1, the macro view of God's creation of all things in seven days and all very good. Genesis 2, the micro view of what happened when God made man and woman our first parents and how he brought them together and introduced marriage and still all is very good. But then along comes chapter 3 and all is undone and it all goes pear-shaped and it's all because of disobedience. Eve succumbs to the serpent's temptation to eat the forbidden fruit, while Adam, who was with her, abdicates all responsibility to be something of a spiritual leader. Instead of trusting and obeying what God had commanded him, he lazily allowed the evil one to speak lies into his wife's ear. And then with the barest of promptings from her, followed her lead in eating the fruit that God had forbidden. And in that act, all was undone. It's what we call the fall. And great was that fall. And so as we heard this morning in our reading from Karen, the day of reckoning arrived swiftly. God came to our first parents in the garden and although they hid themselves from him in shame, nevertheless with a few probing questions, verses 12 and 13, the Lord drew from them their confession of sin. The woman, Adam said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave to me and I ate. Verse 13, the woman replied, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then with the truth forced out, God stepped behind the bench and took the role of the righteous judge. And there follows the moment of sentencing. Three curses are pronounced. Three words of divine judgment. Firstly upon the serpent, upon the evil one in verses 14 and 15. Then upon Eve in verse 16. And then in verses 17 to 19 upon Adam. The world which was so very good is now cursed. The Shorter Catechism perfectly summarises these curses as the estate of misery, of sin and misery into which we are now all in as result of this first disobedience. Everything has changed. Life is no longer sweet. Death has entered the world. Conflict has come into the world. Anger, blame, guilt, and in the next chapter, murder will soon follow. It's a bitter story. It's one that we see the repercussions of in this world every day. Not just in the smaller sins, sins of the heart, anger, lust, hatred, which are real, but in the fruit of these sins, in murder, adultery and war.
every time you go to a funeral, every time you hear of a death, every time you read a newspaper headline screaming something about the state of this world, it all traces back to here. All are stark, sober reminders of humanity's undoing. I'm reminded of the story of the great Christian writer G.K. Chesterton who when the newspaper asked for contributions toward the theme, what is wrong with the world? He wrote, dear sir, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. Yes, here is the world's story. But here is your story too, yours and mine, with the curse of death, the capstone of the divine curse upon this world. This is the estate of sin and misery into which the world is now plunged. It's a dark and sobering picture of life, this side of Eden. But secondly, see here the original setting for conflict unfolding. The original setting for conflict unfolding. Hidden there among the words of the righteous God to Adam and Eve and to the serpent is the curse that is to come upon the evil one. Here we are told he will be utterly humiliated. The language of moving on his belly and licking the dust in verse 14 is intended to be what is called a, a double entendre. It describes simultaneously the behaviour of a snake and it provides a graphic metaphor of defeat and shame. He shall eat dirt. It's language we still kind of use, isn't it, when we want to humiliate an opponent. It's worse than chewing on your boot. It's eat dirt. You lose. That's what the snake will do. He will be utterly defeated and humiliated. But that's not all. In the middle of God's curse upon the serpent, the evil one, we find these words in verse 15. They're printed on the front of your pew sheet. They're widely recognised by believers throughout the whole of time and from every place in the world as being the first proclamation of the gospel, the proto-evangelium, it's called the first proclamation of the gospel, the good news of the coming Messiah. Hear the words of 15 again where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. The Lord in speaking this word of judgment on the serpent establishes human history as one long record of spiritual conflict. The history of one long irreconcilable war across all the ages, a terrible conflict will rage between two classes into which all people everywhere are divided. We're either the seed of the serpent or we're the seed of the woman. We either live in the grip of Satan's deceits or we are heirs of redeeming grace and the children of God. And between these two groups, God says there will be perpetual enmity, enmity between the offspring of the serpent 
and the offspring of the woman between the world and the church, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And as you read through the pages of Holy Scripture, isn't that exactly what you see again and again? Cain kills Abel, enmity. Noah is mocked and rejected by his generation, enmity. Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, Israel and the nations, the church and the world, enmity, warfare, conflict. Well, think about Matthew chapter 3 at verse 7, when John the Baptist is on the banks of the Jordan baptising And many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come out to be baptised by him. They're the religious elites of John's day. But John sees through their hypocrisy. He sees right to the heart of their insincerity. And in response to their hypocrisy, he goes directly to Genesis 3.15 to describe them. John calls them in our translation, a brood of vipers. What he actually says is, You are the seed of the serpent. You are seeds of the serpent. You do not belong to the seed of the woman. You are the enemies of the kingdom of God. Jesus does the same thing. John chapter 8, verse 41 and following. The Pharisees who were engaged in debate with him were claiming that God was their father, to which Jesus responded, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, but you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. They are the seed of the serpent, because they do not love Jesus, but they do love the lies of the devil himself. And so here in this verse, verse 15, at the dawn of human history, we have this announcement that life for a child of God is going to mean conflict. Now, you may have been told to follow Jesus will mean that your life will become so much easier and you can be so much happier and Jesus is going to iron out everything and fix everything, which he will do. Praise God, one day when he makes all things new. But our passage here is telling us the truth, that to follow Jesus, to be on the side of the offspring of the woman, to belong to the seed of the woman, to be a member of the kingdom of light in the midst of a dark world is to be in a war zone. You are a combatant on the front lines of a cosmic conflict. There is enmity, there is hostility. This first Christmas text, which we'll see in a moment, points us to the Messiah, is a declaration of war. It cuts through the tinsel and the Christmas lights with a a weighty message. To be a child of God, to belong among the offspring of the woman, is to live in unceasing conflict with the world and the flesh and the devil. No truce is possible. Ceasefire is inadmissible. We're at war. The battle lines are drawn and you, if you're a follower of this Messiah, then you are in that war and you are on the front lines. You're a target of the enemy. 
But then thirdly, we see here the certain promise of Messiah winning. The certain promise of Messiah winning. Look at verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice at the heart of that age-old conflict that this passage predicts a climactic conflict between one individual and the serpent himself. One individual. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you, singular, shall bruise his heel. Of the many who are the seed of the woman, one shall come in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Galatians 4.4 First John 3.8 tells us, It was for this reason that Jesus the Son of God was revealed to destroy the works of the devil, that is to wage warfare and to win the victory. Jesus, you see, is the seed of the woman, of God. Sorry, the seed of the woman of which God speaks as he judges the serpent. The heir of the ancient promise, he is the one who will do what Adam ought to have done in the first place, but did not do. He will be a second and a better Adam who will crush the serpent's head though in doing so the serpent shall sink his fangs deeply into the flesh, the heel. You remember how when God drew from the first Adam his confession of sin, Adam nevertheless tried to dodge it, he tried to blame shift, didn't he? You remember what he said? The woman, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the forbidden fruit and I ate. It's not my fault. It's her fault. Wasn't he saying in effect, she's the guilty one? Condemn her? I've got an excuse. I'm not guilty. Condemn her? Let me live? But Jesus, the second in the better Adam, says the opposite. When God the judge pronounces sentence on our sin, Jesus doesn't shift the blame. Jesus takes the blame. Adam said, she's the guilty one, condemn her, let me live. But Jesus says to God, for us, they are in fact the guilty ones, but condemn me. Let them live. Many commentators that you know will point to the coverings of skin that God will make for Adam and Eve at this point. The end of chapter 3 is the first intimation in Scripture that blood sacrifice would be part of the way that God would save his people from their sins. Adam and Eve in their shame, remember, made feeble coverings for themselves from fig leaves trying to hide. But God provided the only adequate covering for their shame, though it required the shedding of blood. Jesus, the seed of the woman, well, he will offer himself to the condemnation of the Father that we might live, that by the shedding of his blood on the cross, 
provide the true covering for sin. Now over and over again in the scriptures there are allusions to this passage as the Bible talks to us about the final victory of Jesus at the end of the age and the victory of the people of God along with him. So for example, Psalm 72 verse 9, we are told that God's enemies will lick the dust like the serpent in our passage before the heir of King David, the Messiah. Micah chapter 7 verse 17, likewise speaks of a day when the nations shall lick the dust like serpents as they tremble before the judgment of the almighty God. In Revelation chapter 20, John speaks of that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, bound and eventually utterly destroyed by the Messiah forever in the lake of fire. The Bible's message is therefore explained like this, that Jesus Christ, this Messiah that we sang about, this seed of the woman, this baby of Bethlehem, this man of Calvary, this Lord on the throne, triumphs. And one day his victory will be complete. And up into that victory, the scriptures say at the end of the age, the church, all of us, will be swept that swept up into it that we might participate in it. His victory becomes our victory. Isaiah 65 verse 23, for example, pictures the moment when all the curses of Genesis 3 are finally reversed. And you can read for yourselves there the ways in which the prophets foretold that in the new creation, all these curses announced by God will be undone because of Messiah's victory over the serpent and sin and death in the grave. And that day which is still coming will be a day when God will make everything new and his people shall dwell in peace through the triumph of the work of this Messiah whose victory over the serpent was won at the cross and at the tomb. That's our bright and confident hope as those who read and believe God's word and who put their faith in God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour of men. Well, what then of this world in which we live in this December Advent season 2023? Well, as we look out upon this world, we cannot help but notice that it is a dark and uncertain world, one that desperately needs hope. And here in this text, we find that hope. Not one that's based on sentimentality. Not one that's an exercise in make-believe. Not one that has anything to do with ourselves as if we or any other politician or earthly ruler is the hope that the world needs. We're not and they're not. Our confidence And our hope lies in this Messiah, in the babe of Bethlehem, in the one who was born of a woman and crushed the serpent's head at the cross. And because he has done that, because the baby of Bethlehem became the man of Calvary, Paul could say to the whole church, Romans 16.20, the God of peace, 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. That is, the victory of the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be your victory also, dear struggling believer. This is your victory. All the malice against us will end. Every temptation and evil will cease. All the affliction and opposition, all the cultural pressure to conform or to tone it down or to back off from the truth will all be gone because the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory is also his. And so we face this world in Advent, not in despair, but with the brightest of hope that even in the darkest moments The light of the world shines brightest in the darkest night, reminding us that though things may look bleak, the night is far gone and the dawn is still yet ahead. And friends, that's our hope and that's also our message to the world. There's good news in the seed of the woman in the baby born at Bethlehem, the Saviour of Calvary, whose victory every believer will one day not only see but share. He is our only sure hope. Make sure that this morning is your hope. Let's pray together. Gracious, loving Father, we bring thanks to you that as we trace the line of Scripture from old to new, it's not as though these things happen by coincidence. The one who was promised was soon to be revealed as coming from the tribe of Judah. And the later prophets confirmed that he would be born in Bethlehem. And we remember how the New Testament announces his birth, locating him exactly there, that even kings, wise men, came and bowed down the knee before him and worshipped him. But even then, that's not the end of the story. Greater things than this did he do for his people. So today we thank you for this first announcement of the gospel. Just in preview, we have greater ones yet that we will rejoice in. But we thank you for this that the one who was promised came and we rejoice in him. We give him the glory, the name that is above every name and were we to join all the glorious names, they are, to, they are all too mean to speak his worth. Help us not only in this series we'll go through, but in our own hearts, to rejoice in him, to come to him, 
to find him true to his word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.